Welcome to the second program in WERU's public affairs series entitled Maine the Way Life Could Be. I'm Amy Brown. And I'm Jim Campbell. When we talk to a good number of folks about challenges that they'd be facing in their lifetimes in Maine, one that was on almost everyone's list is climate change. And that's no surprise. Climate change is often in the news and quite a few efforts are underway to try to inform people about what climate change is and what it might mean for the world as a whole and for various parts of the world. In today's program and in the next program in our series, we will concentrate on what climate change could mean for Maine. To do that, of course, we need to spend at least a few minutes with some big picture information to set the stage for what will follow. We'll begin today's program with some of that big picture information, especially as it applies to Maine. We hope to bring that information down to a more granular level by talking with some of those we don't always hear from in general climate change presentations and coverage. So after we get some big picture context on the issue, we'll talk with some people in the trenches, town officials and planners who are already wrestling with some of the current effects of climate change and whose job it is to plan for future events in their communities. We'll finish today's program with another perspective that's not always front and center when we're talking about climate change, that of Native people all around the world, but particularly here in Maine. We'll speak with Sherry Mitchell, a member of the Penobscot Nation and a person intimately involved in issues facing Indigenous people here in Maine and beyond. Let's get started with some big picture information from Dr. Ivan Fernandez. He's a distinguished professor at the University of Maine in the School of Forest Services, part of the university's Climate Change Institute, and a member of the state government's Maine Climate Council. We excerpted the following segment from a presentation he gave, which is distributed by the Belfast Free Library. It was sponsored by the Belfast Garden Club. Here is Professor Ivan Fernandez offering an overview of some of the key effects of climate change, both in the wider world and here in Maine. Maine's climate future, that's sort of a catchy phrase, but it's also the the title of a a series of of documents that we produced out of the uh, University of Maine, Climate Change Institute and Sea Grant, and the most recent is also including uh, Scudic Institute as as partners in developing it. give us some of the metrics of what I like to refer to as the dashboard of, uh, of our changing climate. Before we do, though, I, I usually make a slide literally every year that uh, talks about the evidence of, of climate change all around us. And certainly 2021 was, was no ex- exception. What we observe the most, what has the greatest impact or carries the news most frequently are the extreme events. Um, not necessarily the incremental changes in climate, even though they uh, are continuing and accelerating. And in in 2021, uh, I think most of you will uh, recall a lot of what we saw in the news. We saw early in the in the year there uh, there was a, a dam burst in the Himalayas from a glacier melt that from the excessive uh, melt waters that destroyed hydroelectric dams and killed dozens of people. We had flooding that began early and was evident throughout the year. We had a two foot rain in 24 hours in Hawaii on March 7th, followed by flooding in the news in China, Germany, and Italy set a world record for 29 inches in in 12 hours, consistent with the intensification uh, of rain events. 
In August, it rained at the summit of Greenland ice sheet for the first time, and that's not a good thing. Um, on Friday, December 10th, the deadliest December tornado outbreak on record killed over 100 people and carved a 250-mile course through Arkansas, Illinois, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, and Tennessee. Hurricane season started out as another record breaker with Claudette, Elsa, Grace, and Nicholas in the news, uh, but it did slow in the second half of the season, yet it was the second year in a row to run out of letters of the Greek alphabet uh, with 21 named storms, uh, which is still the third highest on record. Uh, Ida captured headlines as a Category 4 hurricane, making landfall on August 29th, leaving devastation in Louisiana and Mississippi, only to traverse the eastern seaboard to Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. Ida was the largest storm to hit the region since Hurricane Sandy, with $64.5 billion in damage and 96 deaths, ranking as the fifth most costly weather disaster in world, world history, uh, according to NOAA. Here in Maine, we experienced a number of torrential rain events again in 2021 with notable news items of greater than uh, five inches of rain in down east Maine on June 9th that washed out over 10 miles of the carriage trail system in Acadia National Park that they spent the rest of the year repairing and, and still some remains. And in late October, we had a downpour that washed out roads in the mid-coast Maine that most of you are familiar with, uh, along with power outages and flash flooding. Lest you think I know you don't, that 2021 was all about being wet. It was also a hot year and uh, a heat wave hit, hit the Pacific Northwest in June and July that we read a lot about as a heat dome breaking uh, numerous records. And nearly half the nation was in drought by midsummer, including all of Maine. Midsummer rains brought relief in Maine in 2021, but not so for the Western United States, which continues in uh, a multi-year mega drought. For the first time, a tier one water shortage was declared for the Colorado River, which has reached a low of nearly a third of storage capacity in Lakes Mead and Powell. July was the Earth's hottest month ever recorded, according to NOAA. Fires raged across the Western United States again in 2021 and continue to today, even in the winter. As of November, the National Interagency Fire Center listed over 52,000 year-to-date fire incidents in the U.S., that were burning over 6.6 million acres with a five-year average fire suppression cost of $2.3 billion per year and rising. Smoke from the fires traversed the U.S. on prevailing winds, leading to a blanket of smoke in Portland, Maine on July 28th. Nearly one of every three Americans live in a county that was hit by a weather disaster this past summer. And the U.S. has experienced this past year 20 weather climate disaster events exceeding costs of $1 billion that included drought, flooding, severe storm, tropical cyclone, wildfire, and winter storm events. The consistent progression of these extreme events is evidence of uh, our changing climate. The intensification of them is what we expect and what has been predicted and we're now experiencing. That's not to say all of these events would not have uh, would not have happened if there wasn't climate change. Most many of them would, but the intensity and the frequency is increasing, and those changes are accelerating. So that's the that's the sort of classic climate change gloom and doom. But it's real and it's happening, and it's costing us in in, in uh, many ways. And certainly ignoring it or pretending it's the normal conditions that we live by would be a falsehood. Finally, you know, global warming is about it being hot, and it, officially, the 2021 was the sixth warmest year on record. The last eight years 
were all the eight hottest years on record in the world. So those are the extreme events that are evidence of changing climate. And we all understand the, the implications of those events for our overall economy, as well uh, in particular for the people who live in the path of those, uh, those disasters. Maine's climate future reports that I mentioned, um, we, the first one was in 2009, and we did an update in 2015. We did an update in 2020. And I'm going to use those to just highlight some of the data from Maine that shows uh, how the climate is changing and continues to change with expectations uh, into the future, largely from the most recent report, but drawing on, uh, on all three of them. So uh, in the last 100 years, uh, it's warmed about 3.2 degrees Fahrenheit, and we expect that warming. We know that warming is continuing. We expect that another one to three degrees by uh, 2050. The warm season, growing season, whatever terminology you'd like to use, is longer by roughly about two weeks. It varies across the state and obviously from year to year. But that change is accelerating, and we expect another two weeks by uh, mid-century. High heat index days are increasing. Typically, we have had very few here in Maine. It's vacation land, after all. But as the temperature increases, high heat index days are a combination of high heat and humidity, which has uh, human health consequences. And we expect more and uh, the greatest increase will be in the, the coastal zone. Precipitation has increased, and that has certainly been the thing that has caught uh, Mainers' attention in recent years. Over the last century, we've gotten 15% more precipitation, and we expect another 5 to 10% more by mid-century. This is not only the overall precipitation, but also the increased frequency of these intense events that we've already referred to from this past year. It's warming, so we get less snow, roughly 7% less snow in the last 100 years, and a significant loss of snow, and there's lots of different metrics for snow, but from 20 to 40%, with the greatest losses in the coastal zone. The greatest loss of snow characteristics, the greatest loss of winter characteristics will be in the coastal zone because it's already warmer than the interior and therefore uh, more likely to uh, either melt the snow or not form snow at all in the precipitation event. Ocean temperature is increasing. The Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of the world's oceans, and particularly the group at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute has been responsible for that research. So it's warming and that rate of warming is accelerating. That we all know has profound impacts on our fisheries uh, and ecosystems in, uh, in the Gulf. And we expect that to continue as well as accelerate. Sea level rise is obviously critical for coastal communities like Belfast. We've seen about uh, six tenths of a foot over the last hundred years and I'll say more about where it's going in the future, but at, at a minimum, another half to, to two feet by mid-century, depending on the, the scenarios that we follow. The only climate uh, dashboard component that's not on the dashboard is ocean acidification, which is the chemical change in the ocean waters, the acidification of the ocean waters primarily due to CO2 dissolving in it, but by other factors. Uh, and it was not on our dashboard because we, we don't have the kind of long-term uh, data for ocean acidification, but, but we will since there's a tremendous focus on the importance of that going forward. 
That was Professor Ivan Fernandez of the University of Maine speaking in a presentation earlier this year made available online through the Belfast Free Library. The big picture effects that he spoke about are already being encountered in an everyday way by local officials and planners. In our first program in this series, we heard from three local officials about challenges that they saw facing Maine now and in the not too distant future. While everyday issues like affordable housing, education spending, employment rates, and other bread and butter issues are on their minds, so it turns out is dealing with some effects of climate change today and preparing for potentially much more powerful effects in the near future. Here are some of the potential effects that they see coming toward us that they and other civic leaders are going to have to deal with. We'll let each of them introduce themselves, and then we'll ask them about how they're thinking about climate change in their local roles. I'm Ann Krieg. I'm the planning officer for the city of Bangor. I've been here uh, two and a half years. I've also worked in other communities, Bridgeton, Bar Harbor, and I also worked down in Massachusetts. You know, a lot of my job is is working with permitting and zoning, but I also am working on um, an updated comprehensive plan. Uh, and I also work on special projects with the city council. I'll go next. My name's Kathleen Billings, and I've been working for the town of Stonington oh, over 20 years now, the last 15 years of it as the town manager. So I'm Jim Fisher. I'm uh, the Deer Isle Town Manager. I've been here for three years. Probably the longest single job I had was a senior planner with Hancock County Planning Commission, where I was 17 years. It's a big, big thing. Everybody talks about climate change. But how do you go about trying to think about how to deal with it in your own context? Well, I'll, I'll answer quickly. We're, I'm fortunate that in the Blue Hill Peninsula, we've we've gone out of a, a somewhat regional strategy, a very small region, about 10 towns are all uh, working together. We meet at least once a month and even more often. Uh, we've got some tremendous expertise in this committee, so it's been very helpful for me. I mean, I've been dealing with this issue, looking at it for a long, long time, and uh, obviously the situation is pretty dire. From a local landowner perspective, the crisis of the day is that their shoreline is eroding and they want riprap and they want to somehow adapt or protect what they have. Um, but we really can't do that on an island in the long run. If sea level were to go up 10 feet, we'd, we'd lose a lot of valuable shoreline. Stonington Village would be devastated. We have to, so in the long run, we have to be working as, as a region, really as a world, to, to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions and these sort of bigger issues. So in the short run, things we can do, you know, converting to more energy efficient equipment, we put LED lights in the town offices, the street lights, we put an electric vehicle charging station, trying to get ready for that conversion. And, uh, but we've got some bigger, bigger issues about lifestyle, about distance in rural areas that we have to drive and walkability and bikeability. And those are much harder structural changes we have to confront. So there's that long range stuff that I'm really glad I've got this regional group working on, but there's also this very short range stuff where we're trying to fund these, these very costly little projects you know, for stormwater and coastal erosion. When you say, when you say long-term among the group that you're working with, what, what does long-term mean to a lot of 
a lot of it's mitigation. It's stuff that you have to do now that won't be have an immediate effect. I mean, if we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and this is global, I mean, it's got to happen in China and India and the U.S. If we can do that, then we have a shot. But if we think we're going to build, you know, berms and and flood walls and everything, we're we're deluding ourselves. And so, those long term solutions are not the um, the crisis of the moment, but they're the thing that's going to matter the most and probably the most uh, cost efficient way to to deal with the problem. Uh, th there are some, I, I think Kathleen could talk a greater deal about some long term adaptation strategies because Stonington's the furthest along on that and I'll turn it over to her if you want to talk. Yeah, thank you, Jim. You know, for, for Stonington, we had some, with the climate change, we really had some issues as far as like stormwater runoff and brooks over going their boundaries, you know, with the excessive rainfalls and issues within, you know, our stormwater with our sewer system and stuff. So I've kind of built off a framework from former town manager, Rich Avery, when he started in 2000, and he was here for a number of years, starting to adopt some of the FEMA standards, upgrading culverts and stuff like that, which helped. And also to it sort of spread some of the expense out. And then when 2007 came, you know, it seemed like the events were getting worse and stuff. So, you know, I did a fair amount of stormwater management, upsizing, upsizing culverts and such. But also, too, the FEMA flood maps were coming out, did quite a lot of work as far as that. And it also kind of gave you the realization how much Stonington and other coastal communities were going to be affected. And as Jim says, the amount of money it's going to take to deal with it. So that led to uh, our FEMA flood maps. We had Bob Gerber, who was an excellent person, help us kind of firm up and uh, appeal some of the areas. So we could really kind of get a handle on the insurance rates that people would have to do in the various zones, but also to what areas we may have to look at as far as uh, if we had to repair a seawall or something, just how much impact there would be with it. And, you know, that subsequently led to Hancock County planning. They had some grant that was out that they invited us to participate into you know, for our asset map and what would be affected by the climate change. That turned into us getting some coastal planning grants and hiring an engineering firm to look at the various roads that were going to be affected from the ultimate maps that we received, the downtown areas. And so it gave us a really good roadmap and also a cost analysis to bring back to people, you know, as Jim says, how much this is going to cost to deal with it and try to build some reserves and savings and stuff like that and priorities for taking on some of these projects. Anne Creek in Bangor, is climate change as high on the priority list or what are the priorities? I think you mentioned several, including homelessness and affordable housing. Uh, where, does, where does climate change fall on that list and what are the top priorities that you're all dealing with now? Well, we just released an RFP with the Bangor Area Transportation Group backs to work on a regional climate action plan, just sort of taking the lead from the state's climate plan. So we're a little bit behind uh, the peninsula on it, but, um, but we're going to be starting a plan that has two phases. One is a vulnerability assessment, and then the second phase is, you know, the strategies to 
to respond to it. We're looking at issues, you know, with sea level rise as well, flooding and extreme storms that we we already see that in Bangor. So, what time frame did you put on your RFP? Um, it's due, I think, at the end of this month. And for those who don't work in that world, let me just say that's a request for proposals for people right. who would work on the project. Exactly for consultants. Yeah. So, um, but what what time frame did you ask for them to be looking at? Oh, it's a year. It's a one year project that we okay. expect. Yeah. And and are they supposed to be looking forward two years, five years? 10 oh, years? yeah. It's a it's um you know sort of a five ten and then a 20, 25 year you know look at yeah. Is that the kind of time frame that Jim that you are looking at in your aisle or uh, down in Stonington? You know, it, I'd have to go with Anne's answer, at least for me. It, it's there are different tiers. <laughs> you know, right. There are some things that are emergencies. We've got culverts that are failing because of the heavier rainfall, and we have to deal with those right away. That's hardly even a plan at this point. That's just reacting. But I, I think, you know, we're, we're embarking on a comprehensive plan, and that will certainly be a 15 or 20 year time frame, I think. The, the, the state's plan, I think, is called the four-year plan for climate action. So they're looking in a four-year frame, and they're putting out funding within that kind of frame, too. And, and there are some things that we have to do very quickly, I think. Traditionally, the sort of the standard is a comprehensive plan. You're looking at, you know, seven to 12 years, you know, that that's your sort of planning time frame. But ultimately, I think the real difference with climate action plan is you have to kind of you have to go beyond that because a lot of the information that we know right now is you know the with sea level rise it's a 30 year you know we have to look 30 years in advance now as Jim is saying these culverts that he has to keep replacing at what point does he stop replacing it and say this is where the sea's going to go you know, this is what's going to happen. So, and I think we have to do that too in Bangor in terms of our floodplain and, and looking at what point do you say, well, this is where water wants to be all the time. And, you know, we what do we do with that? So it's, a, I think it's a, it's very different for a, from a traditional planning perspective because our comprehensive plans usually are about, you know, we're looking at a decade in advance, but climate action, I think is a little bit further. Another regional issue we're tackling for Deer Isle, and I know Stonington and Bangor miles ahead of us is broadband. And it doesn't seem immediately to be connected to climate change, but it clearly is. Uh, we're receiving what I would call climate refugees and COVID refugees, people with, with substantial resources are buying up properties in our island and they're planning to live here. But broadband is a major constraint to their plans. They, they're still working and they're working remotely but they don't have fast enough internet and uh, so regionally we're trying to bring in fiber optic speeds of internet so that people can do that and so that we can diversify our economy the same time dear and stonington both of our grocery stores are in chapter 11 and they're still functioning but we're worried about that the nursing home in deer isle closed a few months ago they're emptied of patients and so we're really looking at some major economic upheaval here, and we're trying to figure out how we grapple with that. But I'd say a lot of it 
you know, connected with climate change, displacement of the workforce by people moving in who have deeper pockets, so we don't have enough workforce workforce housing anymore. The nursing home closes. It's a, it's a it's all connected. On our climate change study that we did, we looked at it a little bit differently, and a major portion of that was the sea level rise itself and where that might be. And we went all the way out to 2100, just because so much of it would be affected and the dollar value on it. So, you know, just to follow up on that. But also too, we are facing some significant things with the climate, but also too, our workforce, the population decline in it, the real estate boom. Um, Boy, these are gonna be some significant things for coastal communities to be able to grapple with and how do we afford to tackle them and so many of them and you know I, they are intertwined but many of don't, them are don't intertwined. leave out lobstering <laughs> and yeah absolutely with the lobstering because the temperatures in the gulf are changing so the patterns of the lobsters on what they do and you know along with the federal regulations that were under as far as like eliminating lines in the water and stuff i mean they're huge challenges to coastal communities and I don't know what we're going to replace them with with jobs and stuff so it's hard to know what to tackle first. As you're speaking I'm wondering if one of the obstacles to climate change planning and the reason that now we're in so many places in reaction stage rather than planning ahead stage is because it took so long for so many people to accept that it was even real even when they were seeing it right before their very eyes. Did you have resistance to doing any kind of planning around climate change early on? Or has the population in your towns always been on board with, yes, this is real and we need to do something about it? I definitely thought we saw here where the levels of water rise and and the, you know, flooding on different roads and stuff like that. Seeing those immediate impacts, I think, paved the way for us. So I didn't view that, but also too, with some of the federal monies coming out with climate change and, you know, having a comprehensive plan in place, the engineering study, it provides opportunities for Stonington for taking some of these priority areas that we have and applying for some of those opportunities, grant opportunities to do the design, the bid package and stuff like that to make shovel ready projects and keep moving that forward. So for us, it's, you know, we're just moving ahead as best we can. There certainly has been resistance. It's been a learning process for a lot of people. And I think there's still, I would say locally and nationally, a reluctance to give up um, some of the fossil fuel intensive activities we have and think about how we can readjust lifestyle. I think I'm hoping I think the state is holding out electrification of transportation as the golden bullet. I'm, I'm nervous about that. Our coal consumption nationally is going up now. Oil prices are going up. We haven't really succeeded so far. And, and even converting to electricity, we're not going to have the energy in our grid to, to recharge all the vehicles. It's really a, a, a quite a complicated thing to take on. And I'm I think we're going to have to look more broadly than just electric cars to solve this uh, and electric space, you know, heat pumps. Those are all good things, but I don't think they're enough. So people are, I think, admitting they're, they're, they're aware now of the flooding and the erosion. Those are, those are pretty well cemented, but still some of the 
actions we'll need to take is I think there's a lot of denial. I mean, our grid, we don't have a single substation in Deer Isle, I don't think so. We we have three-phase power, but it's only in limited places. We don't really have a sense of the capacity. Um, and it's going to take, along with running fiber optics everywhere, we're probably going to have to beef up our grid. And the not-in-my-backyard reaction to even solar power, which seems like the most mom and apple pie solution, is so strong that it's, I think it's, you know, and you saw what happened with the CMP corridor, those, those kinds of projects to deliver electricity hit a lot of resistance. And I'm sure we're going to see that locally too, if we have to beef up three-phase power and other, other delivery systems. So that, you know, microgrids, I think are a good idea. We need to move towards that, look at electric storage to meet peak demands. There are a lot of technical solutions, but we're not moving there very quickly and we probably should pick up the pace. Do you have any ideas about how we might do that? <sighs> Not particularly good ones. I mean, I, I, I do think that the town's role is in part to come up with, I know Blue Hill's gone through a moratorium, a lot of towns have to come up with policies that will enable people to put in solar on a scale that's going to make a difference, not just rooftop, and going to have to look at wind generation offshore. We can't really ignore these kind of uh, non-fossil fuel sources. We have to look at that and how we're going to make it work or if we can. And I think conservation, is there's so much we can do there, uh, not just with cutting heating costs, but also looking at smart growth. And, and, you know, she's in the city, so they can do that. It's harder here, but looking at ways to, to get people in a position where they don't need to drive so much and they don't have such a big uninsulated structure to heat every winter. In Bangor, I think the leadership, the state on their climate plan has helped us at, you know, at a staff level to say, hey, the state has created this plan. You know, we would like to do one for our area. So I think that has been a good, a, a positive thing for Bangor. And, you know, we have our city council right now is, you know, they're very progressive. They want to see change in their community. So I think, I think we're in a good position right now to pursue action. Those were the voices of three town officials looking at the current and potential effects of climate change. You heard from Kathleen Billings, the Stonington town manager, Anne Creek, a Bangor planning officer, and Jim Fisher, the Deer Isle town manager. Planners in other parts of the state are dealing with a range of other issues. This is the second program in our series on Maine, the way life could be on community radio WERU-FM. Today's focus is on climate change. I'm Jim Campbell with Amy Brown. If you missed the first program or would like to hear all or part of the second program again, or mention it to your friends who you think might be interested, you can find the programs in this series and a lot of others produced by WERU in the Public Affairs Archive at www.weru.org. Just click on Programming and then Public Affairs Archive on the drop-down menu. Programs in the archive are arranged alphabetically. Finally today, we'll hear a perspective that does not always get included when talking about climate change and its potential effects and how to deal with those effects. The voices of Indigenous people around the world and here in Maine. Sherry Mitchell has been a guest on many WERU shows over the years, and she was the host of Love and Revolution, a podcast that we aired here. 
She's a member of the Penobscot Nation, an attorney with a focus on indigenous issues, an author and international speaker. Sherry is also the founding director of the Land Peace Foundation, an organization dedicated to the global protection of indigenous land and water rights and the preservation of the indigenous way of life. A little context may be helpful in understanding some of the items that Sherry mentions in her comments. UNFCCC, or UNFCCC, refers to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. COP is short for Conference of the Parties, meetings held every few years in which governments from around the world try to agree on carbon emission reduction standards. Justice 40 is an effort by the Biden administration to ensure that 40% of overall benefits from federal investments on climate and clean energy go to disadvantaged communities. Sherry also mentions the old saying about the canary in the coal mine. Canaries were actually often taken into coal mines in bygone days because they were sensitive to loss of oxygen. If a canary died, it was a sign that miners would be next if they didn't get out of the mine into the fresh air. With those references in mind, here's our conversation with Sherry Mitchell. Do you have a sense of what some of the concrete impacts would be, or even the not concrete impacts would be on the tribes? They're all independent. They're in completely different zones within the state. And so their climate realities are a little bit different. And so when we're we're thinking about the Passamaquoddy, whose lands are uh, along the ocean, sea level rise and, and some of the factors related to changes within the ocean waters is going to impact them far more than it's going to impact their relatives in the inland Passamaquoddy tribe. So it's hard to give a canned answer for the impacts, um, right. you know, with the Penobscot Nation being a riverine culture where in we're impacted by the movement of the tides because our water, Penobscot, drains into Penobscot Bay, which connects to tidal water. But at the same time, we're far enough inland so that sea level changes aren't probably going to impact us in my lifetime. That was going to be a question about whether or not uh, the water level changing was going to impact Indian Island. So that doesn't seem to be an impact. How about the severe storms? I'm not sure. I mean, and to be honest, Amy, these may not be the right questions for me. I work on indigenous climate change work on a national and global level, and I don't do as much on the local level. I mean, I know that there's, there's obviously some impacts and there are some changes that are taking place over time that are part of a natural progression, but they're also impacted by the dams and the manipulation of the water and the chemical content in the water the biggest impacts that we're going to experience is going to be to our sustenance living in regard to contamination of sustenance foods and to our waterways and to the animals that, that we live in relationship with along our waterways. And we're already seeing that. I mean, we saw some issues with the deer that were being hunted in, in parts of Maine where there was an advisement against eating those deer. First time that that's happened in my lifetime that I'm aware of, where people were advised not to eat game meat because of environmental contamination. And so, you know, the ongoing degradation of the planet as a result of pollution is certainly connected to climate change, but it's not the same thing as climate change. You spoke about working on national and even international levels. 
Is there any sort of common bond among indigenous people in terms of how the changing climate may affect their ways of life in general? Well, I think that, you know, the commonality that most indigenous populations are experiencing is being the first to be in the pathway of these changes that are happening to our environment as a result of having some of the most destructive industrial practices happening on the borders of our territories. And the areas that are being hardest hit are some of those vulnerable French communities. And so when we think about the ways that climate impacts are affecting people, we have to think about the ability that those people have to access resources outside of their home territories. And some tribal communities are are least prepared to be able to access resources outside of their tribal communities. We also have to think about what is their ability to quickly mobilize to mitigate or to adapt to the changes that are facilitated by climate change. The poverty level amongst Indigenous peoples in relation to the factors that are being weighed in this metric is significant. And so when they're unable to mobilize quickly to create changes to ways of life that have been in existence for millennia with any type of rapidity, then the impacts that they face are far more, far more severe. And one of the most destructive elements, I think, to this whole picture is the fact that for a number of, of populations around the world, those who are driving climate change adaptation and mitigation policies and practices, the ones who are handling the money and disseminating the money are those who believe that the way to uh, mitigate and adapt to climate change impacts is to bring those people more deeply into the marketplace, which of course is destructive to cultural ways of being. And so when, when we're looking at the ways that climate change is being addressed, uh, a lot of the ways that climate change is being addressed create harms for indigenous populations in regard to cultural continuity. There's a real disruption of cultural ways of being, and those things don't very often get weighed. Uh, they don't get considered. So the whole resiliency piece of the top three, you know, the big, the big three with climate change is decarbonization, drawdown, and resiliency. And so when we're looking at that resiliency piece through adaptation and mitigation, the primary mechanism that's being used right now is, is one that, that moves people away from close connection to the earth and more deeply in alignment with this uh, artificial being called the marketplace. When we're thinking about those impacts long-term on tribal culture and, and continuity of culture, those are the biggest threats. In addition to the threats that we're facing in the immediacy and in relation to destruction and contamination of sustenance food sources. When you talk about some of the remediation or ways that people are attempting to address climate change, impacting the tribes. Are you uh, talking about things like the hydro dams in Quebec that's being sold as a green energy project, but it's clearly something that's may or may not be the case depending on who you talk to, but the impacts that it's having on the tribes in Quebec are obviously negative. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's something that's, that's kind of glaring, right? That we 
we see that there's a lot of greenwashing that's going on with industrial movement. And there's a lot of industrial movement that's being labeled as green now as a marketing mechanism. When we are looking at uh, large-scale impacts to life, how those impacts to life are measured and which impacts and which lives are given value in that equation oftentimes fails to meet the needs of the people and the other beings that are living in that territory. So the, the metric weighs far more heavily in favor of profitability. When we're looking at climate solutions, many of the things that are, have been labeled as green are not actually solutions to address the climate crisis. They may assist in decarbonization to some degree, certainly not to the degree that's required for us to change the direction. It's false hope. It's only one part of a much larger strategy. And so when I'm talking about large impacts, what I'm talking about is actually the removal of people from their traditional territories en masse and into completely different territories where their way of living in relationship to those territories by necessity will be different from the relationship that they've had with their homelands for millennia. And so there's a whole new way of being that is going to have to be learned. And in the process of doing that, in the rush to keep as many people safe as possible and to move away from harms that are being caused, there's a real attractiveness to a quick fix. And that's where they try to slide in economic measures that making money seems to be the solution that that everyone thinks is going to solve climate change. And that, again, is one of the most problematic aspects of climate change. And so I've been working with the USA's team from the beginning of the process of developing a, a strategy for climate change here in the United States and now through developing new theories of change for climate change across the spectrum. And, and one of the things that we're wrestling with is trying to determine what is the story going to be for this country? What is the lane that the United States is going to pick? Because it's kind of all over the place and there's no real movement happening anywhere. And when we're talking about indigenous peoples, there are things that everyone should be very, very concerned about because the three largest mechanisms addressing climate change right now for uh, indigenous peoples whose homelands are located within the so-called United States, the language from the UNFCCC, the Convention on Climate Change, out of Article 6, there is a removal of all language related to indigenous peoples. Not this past COP, but the COP before that. At the last COP, all human rights language was removed from that document and from the Paris Agreement. Now, what we've just learned uh, as, we're, as we're moving through, I'm actually going to be doing a panel with um, BIPOC climate scholars in April on this very issue, the removal of all language connected to race from Justice 40. When you're removing language specifically designed to add a layer of protections for those most impacted by environmental injustice, there's no way to move forward with equity and justice and not have those people be considered collateral damage by the larger system. And that's, that's what's being set up to happen, is that those who are facing the most severe impacts are being set up to be collateral damage to this larger movement of the system by erasure of, 
of their place within the crisis that we're facing. How would you see that playing out here in Maine? And let me tag on to that. Does the uh, land claim settlement issues that are being revisited now with those, if the tribes in Maine were had sovereignty and were treated as other federally recognized tribes, would there be a better chance at addressing some of these issues, more power brought to play? Well, first of all, I just want to say that the tribes in Maine do have sovereignty. That sovereignty is recognized, not recognized right, right. by the state of Maine. And certainly the land claim settlement as it's currently written with the unapproved addition, and I say unapproved because the tribes never approved of this language, addition in the 11th hour of the language to eliminate or exclude the main tribal nations from all other federal legislation that impacts uh, indigenous or tribal nations around the country, it certainly positions the tribes within Maine at a disadvantaged uh, in a disadvantaged position. Just by nature of the exclusion, that's at the very heart of of that that particular mechanism within the land claim settlement, which I I view as being one of the most nefarious bits of trickery that the state of Maine has ever imposed upon the tribes, is to make sure that they were excluded from every benefit that was deemed necessary for tribal peoples. And when we think about that that relationship, this his- historic relationship between the state of Maine and the and the tribes, this is just another way for the harms that are going to impact those who are living in the closest relationship with the land and the waters and the natural world to be further driven from that relationship, that sense of kinship that we have with our cultural ways of being and cultural ways of knowing. It's just ongoing measures of destruction of the original peoples. And so that impacts the tribes in Maine. It impacts the indigenous peoples in the Amazon. It certainly has impacted the indigenous people in the Marshall Islands and in the Boreal and all of these other areas where climate change impacts are rushing in, you know, up in the Arctic Circle. When we think about impacts, it's really important not to get too segregated because that whole um, miner's canary quote is relevant uh, in regard to the impacts that indigenous peoples are facing on these climate change issues and the ways that indigenous peoples are being treated and addressed in relation to climate change impacts is a foretelling of how the rest of the population will inevitably be treated because these harms will not be only felt by tribal people. These these harms are are gonna roll out to Uh, impact the larger population. Maine tribes are at a particular disadvantage because of their exclusion from any type of federal legislation that provides relief for climate impacts on tribal nations. All of those things are are important to pay attention to. Sherry, anything that we didn't ask that you want to comment on, please feel free to add. There's just a couple of things that we really need to be able to, um, you know, do two things. We need to be able to create a path of education for those who are unaware of the impacts of climate change. And we need to also be engineering the path to make it easier for people to engage in ways of being and behaviors that are going to be assisting 
at decarbonizing, drawing down and building resiliency. But we also have to really shift these policy levers in critical ways to be able to make sure that the most vulnerable populations are not excluded from the measures that are being developed to address climate change. And so I would encourage people to pay attention to all of the ways that those who are most impacted are being excluded. That includes the language in the Maine Indian um, Claim Settlement Act. That includes the removal of language connected to indigenous peoples from the UNFCCC and the Paris Agreement, and certainly the removal of race from Justice 40. All of those things are setting up the most vulnerable populations, which includes the tribes in Maine, for being left to suffer these, these most devastating impacts in a very short period of time. One of the things that is apparently going to happen, well, it's already happening in terms of climate change, is the movement of different species of animals and even trees and other kinds of natural plant life. So I, I was just wondering whether that's something that's being talked about at this point amongst the tribes. Absolutely, it's being talked about. And our natural resources department is conducting studies in collaboration with the environmental groups at the University of Maine and the Native Studies Program at the University of Maine. They're doing studies, creating projections for the impacts of those things. But it's already impacting our fisheries. It's already impacting some of the subsistence foods that uh, we have, certainly along these waterways that are being impacted by warming. And so when you have warming within our waterways, it not only destroys habitat for our fisheries, but it also impacts the the plants, as you said, and the other species that live along those waterways. And so warming of the water also equates to warming of the air. It changes the weather patterns. We're seeing changed weather, weather patterns in our territory. Uh, in fact, last night we had this incredible windstorm. And we've been seeing an increase in windstorms in this area as a result of changes in the temperature of our waterways because of the atmospheric impacts on changes to the temperature of the water and how that impacts air temperature. These things are already being felt. So they're absolutely being discussed. They're heavy on the minds of those who are working on the front lines of some of those things and who are dealing with the grief of seeing some of the species that they've always known either migrate or disappear completely. I mean, we're living in a time when one million species are on the verge of extinction. Whether it be through migration or extinction, loss of habitat is impacting species on on a large scale, certainly within our territories. And we would be foolish to think that we weren't going to also be impacted by those changes. Thank you. That was attorney, activist, author, and member of the Penobscot Nation, Sherry Mitchell. Many of those who will be the most impacted by climate change around the world are Indigenous people and people with limited resources. As Sherry mentioned, people in the Marshall Islands are already having to leave their ancient homelands in the face of rising sea levels. That's true for others in island nations, from Tonga to the Maldives, and even in island communities in the U.S. Depending on how severely and how quickly sea level rises, It could also displace people in coastal areas of the United States, from the Louisiana bios to low-lying areas here in coastal Maine. 
though their numbers seem to be decreasing, there are still people, including more than a few holding public office, who maintain that there's no such thing as climate change. And even if the climate is changing, to some small degree, that change is not the result of human actions. There's almost no scientific support for that position, however. In fact, in Climate Change 21, the physical science basis, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change put the dominant conclusion of scientists from around the world in pretty straightforward language. Quote, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, and biosphere have occurred. End quote. The best science says that's where we stand today. Our focus in this series is on Maine, but what happens on the planet as a whole affects what happens in Maine. Here are resources for anyone who is interested in finding out what projections we can make about how climate change might affect the way life could be in Maine in the lifetimes of those alive in Maine today. One very helpful document available for free and written for regular folks rather than for specialists is from the Scientific and Technical Subcommittee of the Maine Climate Council. It's entitled, quote, Scientific Assessment of Climate Change and Its Effects on Maine, end quote. We'll put links to this document and everything else we mentioned today on the page for today's program in the Public Affairs Archive at www.weru.org. The council includes scientists, industry leaders, bipartisan local and state officials, and other Mainers. They are charged with developing a four-year plan to address climate change by putting Maine on a trajectory to reduce emissions by 45% by 2030 and at least 80% by 2050. By executive order of the governor, the state must also achieve carbon neutrality by 2045. Some of their findings reported on their website, which is climatecouncilmaine.gov, include the following. Extreme heat days in Maine are expected to be two to four times more frequent by 2050. Warming has shortened Maine winters by two weeks over the past century, a trend that's expected to continue. Warming winters have many effects, including less snowpack, which in turn impacts biodiversity, agriculture, inland lakes and streams, and winter-based recreation. There have been ocean heat waves in the Gulf of Maine, which is warming faster than 99% of the world's oceans and beginning to lose its subarctic characteristics. According to the Maine Climate Council, we can expect to continue seeing sea levels rise, increased ocean acidity, more flooding, possible contamination of groundwater aquifers, erosion, harmful algae blooms, the disappearance of many species, including some of the state's most iconic, like moose, loons, chickadees, and puffins, stress on native trees, public health risks from invasive pests, severe storms, power outages, and food system impacts. And all of that adds up to economic impacts. Another very valuable resource is a document entitled Maine's Climate Future 2020 Update from the University of Maine. The major heading in the table of contents reads, quote, Maine's climate continues to change and fast, end quote. There are a dozen subheadings covering pretty much all of the major aspects of life here in Maine. Toward the end of the report, we find these words, quote, in 2020, there is no question that climate change in Maine is accelerating, impacts all aspects of Maine life, 
has growing costs to society and does not leave us helpless, but business as usual is not an option, end quote. Business as usual is not an option, and one reason is for the health of our young people. In February, the Brennan Center for Justice published an analysis by Amelia Gold titled, Inaction on Climate Change is Taking a Toll on Young People's Mental Health. They cite a survey published in The Lancet in December 2021 that reported that 45% of people ages 16 to 25 said their feelings about climate change negatively affected their daily living and functioning. And 75% think the future is frightening. And that fright is affecting the way at least some people here in Maine are viewing their personal future. I really do think I put kind of a lot of thought into my future because of the climate crisis. I mean, it's almost impossible not to. The ideal situation for me would be, you know, living somewhere close to nature so I can just experience it as long as I can living somewhere with clean air and clean water, preferably somewhere that's not going to be eroded away by rising oceans. But also, I've always felt this guilt about potentially having kids in the future and bringing kids into this world. I just don't want to do that. I feel too guilty about it. I've talked to a lot of friends my age about this too. And all of us are at this common agreement that there's something about having children and bringing kids into the world who are going to outlive us that just feels wrong, especially given that by the time that my generation's children are going to be older, the earth is going to be very, very just significantly different than it is now. And so I think there is this guilt among my generation specifically about having kids or just picturing a life because it's really hard to picture what our future is going to be like when we just don't know because the climate crisis continues to become faster. I think a lot of us are just tired and just want to be teenagers without this burden. That was Grace from MDI High School. We'll hear more from her and other young people as they face a world threatened by climate change on the next program in our series. And we'll hear how some are trying to affect their future through climate change activism. That winds up this edition of Maine, The Way Life Could Be. Our thanks to Ann Luther and Matt Murphy for helping us develop the topic content for the series. And our thanks also to the Maine Arts Commission for their support for the series. And we thank you for listening and would love to hear your ideas about how you see the way life could be in Maine. You can go to www.weru.org and click on the link on the homepage there to record a short comment that may be used on future programs, or you can send an email to thewaylifecouldbe at weru.org. All of the programs in this series, as well as links to any of the resources we mention or to any of the guests who have web pages, will be available in our public affairs archives along with each program. I'm Amy Brown. And I'm Jim Campbell. The next program in our series on Maine, The Way Life Could Be, will air on April 5th at 4 p.m. You're listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, and all over the web at weru.org.